the Buddha can't save you. You know, and there are many Buddhas actually, you know, the Buddhas, the many Buddhas, the infinite number of Buddhas and the infinite multiverse, they can't save you. You have to save yourself. And in order to do that, you have to analyze the nature of reality in order to save yourself. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I continue my exploration of consciousness, exploring a field of inquiry that is focused almost exclusively on consciousness and awareness for hundreds of years. Although it is not science, Buddhism has a uniquely close relation with physics and physicists being oft quoted. Books that come to mind are the Tao of Physics or the Dancing Wu Li Masters, uh, which explore the parallels between uh, quantum physics and and Buddhist thought. Um, I hope you enjoy this foray into the Buddhist mind. If you enjoy my content, please hit like on your podcast app. Please share with your friends. And if you'd like to join the conversation, uh, look us up on Facebook at The Rational View. Dr. John Dunn serves on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he holds the Distinguished Chair in Contemplative Humanities at the Center for Healthy Minds. He is also Distinguished Professor in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures, where he currently serves as Department Chair. Dr. Dunn's work focuses on Buddhist philosophy and contemplative practice, especially in dialogue with cognitive science and psychology. His publications appear in venues ranging across both the humanities and the sciences, and they include works on Buddhist philosophy, contemplative practices, and their empirical examination interpretation within scientific contexts. John Dunn speaks in both academic and public contexts, and he occasionally teaches for Buddhist communities, including the Gomdi Centers of Denmark and Australia and Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe. In addition to serving as core faculty for the Center for Healthy Minds, He's a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, where he has previously served on the board of directors. And he's an academic advisor to the Rangjung Yeshi Institute in Kathmandu, Nepal. Dr. Dunn, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks, Al. Great to be here. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. Could you, could you tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, are you actually a practicing Buddhist? I am, I am actually a practicing Buddhist. I started practicing Buddhism when I left, uh, pretty soon after I left the United States Air Force Academy, where I went uh, first went after high school because I wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, oh, cool! My students say uh, I, I kind of joke about. I think they think I'm still an astronaut. I just don't need a spaceship, you know. But uh, anyway, um, I uh, I then uh, at, back at that time I was actually ended up at Amherst College, and I started studying with a fellow named Robert Thurman, who's now at Columbia University, better known as Uma's father, Uma Thurman's father, and he's actually a very oh, wow. well known uh, Buddhist scholar. And I just got hooked, really, uh, in part because of issues around identity, because I was so invested in that kind of adolescent dream of, you know, leaving the planet that um, uh, when when that fell apart, I really didn't know who I was. 
which is, I think, uh, something I see a lot in my students these days as well. A lot of confusion about so many choices about who they are and how they should be. And it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So in any case, I then just kind of dove right into it and, um, you know, finished my degree at Amherst, did a little uh, kind of wandering about for a while, but then eventually ended up at graduate school in at Harvard University. And all along this time, I continued to practice Buddhism, primarily in Tibetan Buddhist traditions, though I have a connection with uh, pretty much all the uh, main Buddhist traditions these days. And I did my uh, I did my doctoral work on Buddhist epistemology before okay. eventually landing here at the University of Wisconsin. Now, was your was your original upbringing religious in any way, or or a religious, or how? Yeah, I was raised a Catholic, you know, pretty devout Catholic, although my mother uh, was uh, well, she used to refer to the to the previous pope as that bastard. <laughs> so she had a certain <laughs> she had a, a love hate relationship. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, she definitely um, you know was was devout, but in her own way. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. but now, you know, there was even talk at one point of me becoming a, a Catholic priest. So, you know, being kind of religious was, was definitely part of my background. Interesting. And, and, but your, your, your original goal was to become an astronaut. So, you know, that's much more of a, a, a science-y kind of approach to, to a calling. So that, did you see any conflict with those two approaches or, or how did you feel about that? Not really. I mean, not really, because in some ways, I think I just sort of the, you know, the urge to transcendence, you might say, that's in, that's a feature of, of so many spiritual traditions that just kind of manifested in me as an urge to get the heck off the planet, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so uh, in some ways it was really continuous and there there are versions, of course, of uh, Christianity, for example, that can really conflict with science, but there are other ways. And actually, the Catholic Church is interesting in this regard. It certainly has a long history of resisting scientific uh, progress, but also it has a, a long history of serious engagement with science, uh, you know, to this day, actually. So um, it wasn't really something that it, um, at all presented to me as a conflict back when. Okay, very, very cool. So for those of us who are not um, f- that familiar with Buddhism, is there, would, would you say, is there a core inalienable doctrine or religious belief associated with Buddhism? Could you maybe give us a, a quick overview? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So one of the things about Buddhism that's helpful to know is that Buddhism, unlike, especially when we think of Christianity in the modern time, we really emphasize the idea of what one believes and that, you know, you have to believe something in order to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, a lot of Buddhism is actually really, instead of, so that's an orthodoxy, like you've got, you know, uh, yeah. the, the docs, so to speak, right? The, uh, the set of beliefs that you have to keep straight, ortho. But this is actually, in some ways, Buddhism mm-hmm. is more like an orthopraxy, which means that there are certain kinds of practices one should adhere to, but the beliefs can be really quite wide ranging. So in a mm-hmm. sense, you can, you know, what makes you kind of socially a member of the Buddhist community is, is what's called going for refuge, which basically sort of says, you know, there's this is a spiritual path that I want to follow, a path uh, whose goal is to relieve suffering. And I'm going to join other people and, you know, follow the advice of those who've preceded me to see if I can also achieve that goal. 
And then mm. whatever you believe after that is not doesn't technically make you a Buddhist or not a Buddhist, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, so having said that, however, you could say one really ex uh, particularly important theory in Buddhism is what's called the Noble's Four Truths, or sometimes you'll hear the Four Noble Truths. Okay. And they are first that there is suffering. Like, in other words, there's something fundamentally dissatisfactory about our experience, about our lives, that uh, there's an origin of that suffering, a causal origin of that suffering, that the cessation of that suffering can be achieved and has been achieved by some, and that there's a, a method or a path in order to get there. So that's kind of the core. If you don't accept that, then you could be a Buddhist sort of socially, but you're not really going to be able to practice very effectively because it's all about, you know, implementing, understanding. And there's a lot of emphasis on kind of rational inquiry and analysis, understanding what the nature of existence is in order to understand how we are, you know, what is causing our dissatisfaction. And, uh, and then, you know, implementing methods to get past that. This particular path is is maybe the doctrine is that you, to be a well you Buddhist, can say that yeah right so there's I mean that whole package is so there's going to be an analysis of what suffering really means and then an analysis of the claims about an origin of suffering and the fundamental origin is basically confusion like we're confused about the nature of reality and that's why we're suffering and then hmm. there is the concept of the cessation of suffering which you know kind of classically is referred to as nirvana. And then uh, there's a, a method to get there. So all four of those will have, you know, really quite extensive texts. I mean, there's really no Buddhist Bible, I guess, in some ways, you know, if you look at the Tibetan tradition, for example, the Buddhist Bible would consist of 108 texts that uh, 108 volumes have about 800 pages each. <laughs> so it's wow. like, you know, it, 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 including things that contradict each other deliberately. Uh so, okay. Uh, okay. yeah, because, you know, you have some people need to hear one thing and other people need to hear another thing. So anyway, uh, the, the basic idea is that there's a kind of process and all elements of that process need to be understood. There's a process that produces, you know, dissatisfaction. And there's also a process of re reversing that. Hmm. Now, the, the Dalai Lama has mentioned that a reliance on causality and empiricism are common philosophical principles shared by Buddhism and science. Would you agree with that observation? Yes, I would. I've actually had the pleasure of spending a fair amount of time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and, um, you know, was at a meeting. My first time I really I spent a lot of time with him was back in 2007 at his, actually at his residence in exile in, in northern India in a place called Dharamsala when we uh, gathered a group of scientists to kind of have a response to his book, to his book called The Universe in a Single Atom, where he says this, uh, you know, uh, makes this statement, although he'd probably made it before then, too. Mm -hmm. And basically, yes. So there's there are different, uh, you know, one thing to remember is that Buddhism is, you know, really variable and across different cultures and different traditions and so on. But there's definitely a set of core traditions um, that the Tibetans follow coming from India which very strongly emphasize empiricism to the point that uh, if, so there's a seventh century philosopher I've worked out on a lot named Dharmakirti. And uh, basically, you know, what he says is the Buddha's word actually never proves anything that you can't prove yourself. And if you, 
if it attempts to prove something that is trans-empirical, right, that is beyond ac uh, empirical access, then uh, you could use it psychologically to, in a sense, kind of motivate yourself or whatever, but it does not prove anything. It cannot prove, mm. the, you know, the words of the Buddha can't improve the existence of some trans-empirical entity. Okay. Uh, and all the important stuff, including, you know, those that that basic theory about suffering and the relief of suffering, all that can be proven empirically. So that's a very strong position uh, because in uh, this strand of Buddhism, and, and a big reason for that is the idea that really, you you know, you can't, the Buddha can't save you, you know, and there are many Buddhas actually, you know, the Buddhas, the many Buddhas, the infinite number of Buddhas and the infinite multiverse, they can't save you. You have to save yourself. And in order to mm. do that, you have to analyze the nature of reality in order to save yourself. And if you don't, you know, without that understanding of the true nature of reality, you're just going to keep, you know, spinning around on the merry-go-round, as they say, of mm, the, the wheel of the wheel of life. So we, we we have to be involved in this. We can't just believe in something and be saved. It's a very active philosophy. Yeah, and there are versions of this philosophy which are very interesting, which were the sort of final account is to say that all beliefs, no beliefs are ultimately true. In other words, you can have models of the world and they can be useful and effective, but there's no single ultimately true model. Hmm. Uh, that's kind of, you know, the, the final account, the God's eye view of everything, the theory of everything. That is a delusion. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting philosophical standpoint it's kind of there is no there is no truth we can't we can't achieve a true understanding i can see why that's a, we're all confused about reality <laughs> yes <laughs> and a final true ultimate and one of the way of thinking about it is map is not territory you know like there's this story that uh, borges or Jorge luis borges wrote a very short story I can't remember the title of it, but basically it's about, you know, the emperor wants a map made of the empire and the map makers go and they make a map and they come back and he says, no, I want more detail. And they keep going. And then finally they make a map that is the size of the empire. <laughs> In other words, and now it's not a map anymore. It's the territory, right? So maps always, when our, our you know, our theories about whatever, scientific theories, other kinds of theories, they're always maps of something. So the map can't be the territory. If it becomes the territory, it's not a map anymore. Hmm. So I think that's one way to think about it, is that maps are always just maps. They're not the territory. Interesting. So you can't simplify reality to, to a few underlying postulates? Uh, you can, but if you think the postulates are the reality, then you're, you're mistaken. You know, it's like the old Zen finger pointing to the moon. Don't think when, don't think the finger is the moon. Okay. Of course, if you're if if you're a realist, you know, an objective realist, have a lot. If one is very objectivist about mathematical entities, then uh, you you know, there would those people won't agree with this position because they mm. think then that the map is the reality actually. But that that sends us in a different direction. Basically, Buddhists are kind of anti-Platonic. Okay. You know, instead of thinking that the real thing is the ideal form or what have you, it's actually the stuff that you can, in fact, touch, see, sense, smell, 
you know, what's that's the real stuff. And then the the mental abstractions are just that they're abstractions. They may be helpful, but they're not reality. The subjective experience is the reality. Well, no, the the stuff that causes your perceptual content is the reality. You you mentioned that there's let's say 180 108 texts of of Buddhist thought uh, to to go through. Well, actually, there's 225 additional ones, but we won't go there. But. <laughs> <laughs> Science evolves through, you know, what I would say, empirical challenge and reproduction of experiments. Religion typically evolves through argument from authority. Is Buddhist doctrine static or does it evolve? And if it evolves, how do new subjective findings become accepted doctrine? Is there is there a, an imprimatur on these documents? So that's a really, uh, really great question, Al. And uh, so I would say that in principle, so again, uh, following this particular strand of Buddhist thought that His Holiness the Dalai Lama likes to refer to as the Nalanda tradition. Nalanda was a really amazing monastic universe, uh, excuse me, university established probably around the start of the Common Era uh, in ancient India. In the, mm. what's in the now the modern state of Bihar, not too far from the place where the Buddha is said to have become enlightened. And uh, so in that university, they certainly taught this type of material, and they would uh, adhere to Dharmakirti's position that, you know, verbal testimony doesn't add anything. It might help direct you to your empirical, you know, to engage with something empirically, but verbal testimony doesn't in itself prove anything including the word of the Buddha, right? Mm. So uh, that principle was not necessarily upheld by all Buddhists by any means. And even that intellectual tradition itself kind of struggled with the, and we even see this in science to a certain extent, right? And Thomas Kuhn, of course, talks about this in context of scientific uh, revolutions. It's a, uh, the, the sort of weight of what came before can be hard to overcome when there are received theories about the way things are, like neuroplasticity, for example. You know, mm -hmm. the brain doesn't change after a certain um, point in life, uh, just that, you know, it's set. Uh, that turns out to have, that was, you know, received dogma, but that turns out to be wrong. We now know. Uh, likewise, the Buddhist traditions had positions that, they upheld that have turned out to be wrong, but the process of correcting them, basically the more authoritative the person who made those claims were, the harder it gets to revise them. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah. right. So sometimes revision is easy because it's just some, you know, some mildly well-known philosopher who, uh, is not so authoritative that you can't gainsay him or her. But uh, in most cases, it's not that easy. So one way sometimes in Buddhism this is done is, that, is the introduction of texts that make new claims uh, and that are even attributed to the Buddha. And, if, and traditionally, they would just say, oh, this was spoken by the Buddha. But, uh, you know, looking in from the outside, kind of academically, it looks like, oh, this is a way of introducing new ideas in later generations, including even the idea of what are called treasure texts, 
uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, which essentially are texts that are implanted in the minds of people. And then these people reincarnate. And then after some centuries, you know, there's a trigger and then the text is revealed. You know, this text is planted by someone who has a lot of authority, right? So that's Mm. one way of bringing new ideas into the tradition. You know, setting aside whether what the tradition's truth claims about the process are, just to see that as a method is quite interesting, where you can kind of have ongoing revelation. But His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, has also really tried to encourage a process which is just, you know, empirical investigation. And, for example, the uh, the ancient Buddhist cosmology uh, is really a flat-earth cosmology, not surprising, since it, you know, dates from 4th century BC mm-hmm. uh, in its earliest mm-hmm. form. Uh, and uh, he has, and, no, and, and the Tibetan Buddhists, and I think actually Bob Thurman, my former teacher, once described this, uh, seeing that they saw, you know, that famous blue marble picture. He was in India at the time, and, the, and somebody got a hold of it, some Westerner, and showed it to a bunch of these very erudite Tibetan scholars. And, you know, it's clearly like the earth is round, this is up, you know. And they, and they just sort of said, oh, okay. You know, they didn't have a big deal about it. But uh, His Holiness has really pushed to say, you know, rather than just say, oh, okay, whatever, let's really revise our cosmology to be more mm-hmm. in line with what we know in terms of modern cosmology uh, coming mm-hmm. from, you know, astronomy, astrophysics. And uh, he's been moderately successful in trying to have these kinds of updates, but it's still not easy, frankly. So this is the one place I have written about this where uh, the, you know, quote unquote, scientific aspects of Buddhism don't quite live up to uh, that that idea because there's not revision historically has been very tough. It kind of stopped. It largely stopped about a thousand years ago. Okay, so so much it's much more difficult now to to add or or change the texts because of this weight of authority. Yes, exactly. The weight of authority really makes it tough. But I think we are actually in a period where that's starting again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, Buddhism started in five, around 500 BC. And up until around the you know end of the first millennium, there's lots of revision, lots of, you know, um, things that are being reconsidered. But then, especially a lot of the empirical claims kind of don't get revised after that point. And it seems mm-hmm. like that's starting to happen. Interesting. Maybe go, getting to a, a new topic here, and this is something I've been looking at uh, recently in my series of podcasts: is consciousness and awareness. And I know Buddhism is is a, is very tightly associated with uh, our experience and our our thinking and our consciousness and awareness. Could you summarize for us the kind of the Buddhist understanding of of, of you know, maybe the hard problem of consciousness or of consciousness and awareness itself. You've you've referenced a soul or a re- reincarnation, and maybe just give us a, an oversight of what the Buddhist position is on this. Sure. I mean, there's actually no single Buddhist position. There are many different Buddhist positions, and I'll try to uh, represent you a particular version of that that comes out of the Tibetan traditions. Uh, and uh, so, one thing that is important to understand. Um, is that for Buddhists, um, one of the ways in which we are confused and the confusion causes suffering is the belief that there is a single, autonomous, controlling self 
like the one who's hearing, listening right now, the one that's thinking right now, the person who's breathing, person who's choosing to nod their head, you know, whatever, that there's such a person who is in control. And uh, that, you know, so then, you know, the non-Buddhist traditions in India would say that there is such a thing. And that's the thing that gets reincarnated. And they call that the Atman, which is a word for self, like capital S self. It's kind of controlling, indivisible, autonomous, agentive self. Uh, the little guy, you know, there's that uh, that old Woody Allen movie of the guy inside your brain, like running the show, you know. But uh, so that homunculus, that vision is the, the target of a lot of Buddhist arguments to say that there's no such thing. That there's no center, there's nobody in control, nobody's in charge in there, you know. There's uh there's no controlling part of the body mind body system, like some little node in your brain that like is in charge of everything. And uh so that so con their model of consciousness is built around that account of what we call selflessness, right? Where that kind of self does not exist. Of course, you can say you have a self in a, in a, in a more in a different way, but not in that sense, right? And that what part of what that means is that uh, the model of consciousness is not built around the idea of there being a kind of center from which, like a central perspective, that you're sort of looking out on the world. There is a perspective in our experience, right? A sense of like there's an out there and an in here. But that's not who you are, that, you know, the person who's on this end of, of the tunnel of sight, so to speak, is not who you are. That's only a, a structural feature of your visual experience. Uh, so that moment, so that account, of, part of that account of consciousness has certain implications or way it's developed. And one of them is that consciousness is momentary. So unlike our usual conceptualization of the way we are as people, like, you know, I'm the same person I was five minutes ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, that there's a sense of like, you know, John, my name refers to the same being somehow. The Buddhists would say, actually, no, not really. We can talk about, you know, a stream, a causal stream. And in that sense, there's continuity. But there, but that causal, causal stream is constantly changing. So consciousness is actually a causal stream of experiences, uh, one after the next, after the next, that are causally. In, uh, so the previous moment of experience is causally conditioning the present moment of experience. It's being causally conditioned by also it's the environment and interactions with the environment. And so consciousness is just sort of flowing along in time in this way, in a in a complex. Uh, um, causal process and the uh you know the goal of buddhist practice is in a sense to um that there are certain features of that causal process that are dysfunctional and you want to straighten that out basically very interesting so uh, before you go on uh yeah this this actually has uh an interesting parallel and that, that concept has been picked up by by physicists who've been investigating um consciousness um you may have heard of uh Sir Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff, and they, they have a theory of quantum mind. Uh, and in their uh, discussion of orchestrated objective reduction of the quantum wave function, they they 
reference Buddhist text on momentary collections of mental phenomenon and, uh, as I say, distinct, unconnected, and impermanent moments that perish as soon as they arise. And they, they actually reference the Sarvastivadins, yep. which des- describes 6,480,000 moments in 24 hours. Yes. Of conscious <laughs> stochastic, and, and and some Chinese Buddhists has suggest that one thought is is takes twenty milliseconds. So so these actually represent frequencies of of conscious experience in the order of fifty to seventy five hertz, which interestingly correlates well with the gamma brainwave frequency associated with conscious awareness of between thirty to ninety hertz. So yes. that, I I found that as an interesting coincidence. Uh, it is that, it is interesting, and uh, Evan Thompson wrote a little bit about some of the work that that showed this, that attempted to show this in his book Sleeping Sleeping Dreaming Being. My friend Evan Thompson, the philosopher, and uh, who also wrote a very interesting book called I Why I Am Not a Buddhist, uh, more recent publication. Uh, so, um, but I also, I, I actually have written an article in philosophy, East and West, the journal, uh, kind of critiquing a little bit this because it's not really, even though we can kind of come up with those numbers, it's not that simple. And there are many different accounts. So if we, there are enough different accounts that if we just dig enough, we'll find a version that we can kind of make sound like aligns with modern neuroscience, but yeah, I wouldn't, you know, the Savastivada is just one version, you know, um, and it's, I wouldn't over um, emphasize that, but it seems to be a, a certain coincidence there. You know, it's, uh, uh, I think it's, you know, one way of accounting for this is the idea that a moment, a mental moment is one sixty fourth of the snap of a finger. And it's like, it's, so does that mean this, you know, like, some monk in a cave in the Himalayas who's kind of the, the timekeeper. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, this is empirical, right? How did you get there? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's a little, uh, not to be disparaging, but, you know, I just don't want to make it that seem quite that closely aligned. There's a lot we can learn from those kinds of Buddhist texts, including the Savastivada. And there's a new volume called The Mind, uh, and it's volume two in uh, Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist Classics uh, by Wisdom Publications. This is a volume that His Holiness Dalai Lama, uh, you know, uh, conceived and sponsored and then brought a team of Tibetans together. It's a really interesting volume. And if you want to read more about some of those theories that are coming out of Sarvastivada and other traditions, I highly recommend that uh, that volume called The Mind. But, um, you know, basically, I think you could say that the the intuition that is really valuable here is this notion that the consciousness is sort of a causal flux that I think is very powerful. And, and, and also that um, consciousness is embedded in uh, you know, is, is embodied and embedded to use, you know, some terms that come people sometimes talk about as the inactive perspective or four E cognition, you know, embodied, embedded, extended and enacted. And uh, there, are, there are ways in which, even though the Buddhists were largely, uh, but not entirely, and the strand that I, you know, if we get to the end point here, I'll eventually talk about, there is a strand that becomes non-dual, meaning there, so there's what's called substance dualism, right? So you've got like matter and you've got, you've got material stuff and mind stuff, and they are totally different kinds of stuff. 
So you can't have minds if you don't have mind stuff. Mind stuff, minds, consciousness can't come from just matter, right? So that would be a substance dualism, as opposed to some kind of a non-dual view, which could be, well, it's all just matter, and mind somehow emerges, consciousness somehow is just a either epiphenomena or just some kind of phenomenon emerging from matter, or it's all mind, everything is mind stuff. And, you know, matter is just the way in which the mind stuff lo looks to us under certain conditions. Uh, the and uh, But so there, you know, early Sarvasivadans were substance dualists and many, many Buddhist philosophers were at least um, as a matter of convenience, so to speak, substance dualist. I should say that Buddhist philosophy is complicated because Buddhist philosophers, like the one I mentioned, Dharmakirti, will s speak at different levels of analysis. It's a little bit like they'll say they'll sort of use, you know, classical physics to talk about some stuff, and then they'll jump to the quantum level under certain conditions in order to talk about other things. And so, you know, there's the idea that there's just one account is um, there isn't just one account. So they have different levels of analysis. But uh, what the I guess the main thing here is to say that the insight that the Buddhists, in terms of causality, right, that the consciousness is causal, the additional insight there is that the only access we have to reality, quote-unquote, is through consciousness. So that's a very important point, which is, going back to the idea of models, you know, we model reality. Reality is a model, basically. It's our model of trying to explain, like, organize our experience. And, but what we're working with there is always experience, is always in a, an experience, meaning consciousness. So the idea that you could sort of do science without consciousness, like, oh, we don't need consciousness to do science, is incoherent because science is, you know, a human activity, a way of trying to understand what's happening in the world. And all of that only happens within the context of consciousness. So part of what that means is, and this is something that with the strong kind of dualism that we find in modernity, which has slowly been collapsing in late modernity, but like Cartesian dualism, you can't, uh, the idea that, you know, there's a kind of, we're just going to come up with an objective account and, and in a sense, eliminate consciousness from the story is absurd, right? So actually understanding the nature of reality also requires understanding the nature of consciousness. If we don't understand that, it's like we're, you know, looking through a telescope at the world, but we have no idea how a telescope works. We just ignore the fact that the telescope is there as if the what we're seeing is the reality itself. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, something that's unexplained in science. There, there's, you know, it, I think there are certain aspects of science that are working on working towards consciousness. There's a lot of strong work being done in neurobiology and, um, you know, to elicit, you know, what causes consciousness, what interrupts consciousness, what are the weird things that can happen with consciousness. And I'm trying to explore some of these. Um, so it's definitely uh, something that, that needs work uh, and is, is a bit of an open field right now in terms of, you know, how does this arise? And, and you're right, you know, is, is dualism correct? Is is everything consciousness? You know, there's the panpsychism, the universe is consciousness. We don't have to explain the hard problem of consciousness because it is everything versus the emergent 
uh, people that you know everything is matter and consciousness is a is an epiphenomenon of of processing in certain complex networks and you know I'm at this point I'm somewhat agnostic to all of these does does Buddhism have a, say what's the right path do they is there some enlightenment from Buddha that tells us what's right <laughs> I wish <laughs> uh, I mean there are so one thing I will say that's interesting actually is um, uh, that the account of consciousness as a kind of causal process that's embedded in a context and that's always embodied. So minds, even for even the substance dualists among the among the Buddhists, will always say you don't have minds without bodies. Minds are always embodied, and part of what that means is that minds are always in, involved in a kind of emergent process, actually, where they are the result of and of and this would especially be the kind of philosophical strand that Dalai Lama talks about they're always the result of the complex interaction of many different components so the notion that uh what we think of as consciousness in our sort of ordinary waking experience can somehow be sort of extracted from its physical manifestation or extracted from the body, you know, will just sort of fly free. That's just a delusion. Like it's always embedded. It's a complex interdependent phenomenon. And one way of simply saying it is that to be real is to be interdependent. So, uh, and there is no such thing as non-dependent entities on this particular account. So, uh, then when you think that you start to inquire into the idea of like panpsychism, for example, one way of saying that, and this would be like, I've been working a little bit with Giulio Tononi, who's here. I don't know if you are familiar with him, but he has a well-known uh, theory called uh, integrated information theory. IIT is one of the theories about consciousness out there. And he says he's a panpsychist, but he, like Alan Strawson, also, I think the philosopher, uh, not too familiar with Gallen's position, but I think well enough to to say something about it here is, you know, that doesn't mean that everything is consciousness actually on their view. So that would be more like a kind of idealism where, as I was saying before, like every, you know, you can say there's, there's only one kind of stuff in the world and that kind of stuff is mind or consciousness. But they would just say that consciousness is a, is an integral feature of the stuff of the universe, but it's not the only kind of stuff. So like Giulio Tononi would, as I understand him, would say even like every, you know, little particle of, you know, in your headphones is, uh, all that matter also have, has a certain level of consciousness actually, but, it's sort of confusing to call it consciousness. It's a lot of it. This is about how something can represent information or contain information. And it's a little confusing because, you know, it's not consciousness in the way we think of consciousness. But uh, in order to get to that point, the matter has to be arranged in a particular way. It's got to have certain types of connections that enable it to hold, in a sense, to represent, or maybe that's not the right term, but to hold more information. And he has a term called five, which talks about how different kinds of networks can relate to each other in such a way that they hold more and more information. Uh, 
the and so it's not just about like how many nodes you have, but it's actually the architecture of the network that's really important. Uh, and uh, so then when you get to a certain point, uh, you have the right kind of network, then something that looks like what we would think of as consciousness emerges from that. But it is not uh, it, so in part, but part of the way that's happening is that there's always a kind of element of consciousness, even in the matter itself, that it's, you know, in its, even when it's not embedded inside of a network, but it's still material. Right. So that's a very interesting position um, that I find personally find kind of intriguing. It's not dissimilar to a very late Buddhist position that we find in the, in T Buddhist tantras, which is the kind of so tantric Buddhism develops at the end of the first millennium, and that's what goes on to Tibet. And very briefly, you know, the version of that is that instead of being substance dualists, they say, well, everything is made out of the same kind of stuff. And the metaphor they have for it is in uh, Sanskrit is vayu, in uh, Tibetan is lung, it means wind. And it's a, really a metaphor for energy. So everything even the stuff that looks like it's solid, is all made out of energy. And minds are energy kind of in certain patterns. That's what a mind mm. is. That's what consciousness That's is. Very correct from a physics standpoint, too. Yeah, right. So it's like, it's a very interesting idea. Not that, but they don't kind of get in, you know, obviously they're not going to be doing mathematics to talk about, you know, how those networks operate or, uh, the mathematics of complex dynamical systems or what have you. But there are certain kinds of intuitions that are intriguing that do um, that do yeah. suggest certain roots. And one of those roots, by the way, is also then, what does it mean for us to be conscious? Like, what exactly do we mean from this? Remember, you know, again, science is always done from the standpoint of consciousness. So mm -hmm. then the question is, well, what does it mean to feel like you're conscious? Yes. What is that? And how do you know that? you're conscious i assume you're conscious are you conscious al or does that say al or ai <laughs> on the screen i can't <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> no i i am i am al <laughs> <laughs> you're not max headroom in another form <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean the you know, we have this subjective experience and we believe that we, you know, other people similar to us share this subjectivity and we have this illusion of being a controller. You say that Buddhism says there is no controller, no volition, or I don't know if it means no volition. Well, I don't know what that volition. means. There's volition. Yeah, there's volition. There are desires, there's motivations and so on. But it's not like there's a kind of a... So, you know, one way to think about this is even in terms of how... It, contemporary neuroscience talks about brain function, there's no part of the brain that controls the rest of the brain. But, uh, you know, if you think of uh, the brain itself as a complex dynamical network, then, uh, and one that is self-organizing and able to respond to its environment, right, to maintain mm -hmm. its autonomy, then, um, or, you know, just to maintain its organization, uh, then, uh, there isn't a in that kind of a system there's no controlling part of that system but the system nevertheless is able to respond to different inputs i see it can motivate itself to you know uh to move in a particular direction for example if we think of it like a even a simple bacterium moving away from a noxious substance and moving up 
a you know like a glucose gradient you know it's that's a kind mm -hmm. of system there's no brain inside of that uh, bacterium but it's able to as a system it's able to interpret its environment and respond accordingly so that's the basic kind of image also of the hum of human consciousness that it's a complex you know buddhists wouldn't have this terminology but it the idea of a complex dynamical system is a good way is a good analogy for the way buddhists are talking about consciousness I, I like all of this 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 discussion about uh momentary um uh consciousness and and causal uh streams and you know complex interactions as consciousness but it would seem that that sort of a philosophy would be uh totally um inconsistent with reincarnation how does buddhism assume that, what is reincarnation in this case what what are we reincarnating yeah so you know reincarnation is a uh, um there's a sort of you know, remember like different levels of talking different levels of analysis so one simple level is oh you know al you were you know i don't know you were a a, a great um sitar player in your previous life and uh, you know we can kind of make up stories of who you were in all of your previous lives kind of like the shirley mclean version of reincarnation you know and um we identify you in different lifetimes and say oh you have this issue and that issue because i don't know you play you practice sitar too high, too hard and now you get headaches and uh, whatever it is right so we have uh we can have an idea that there's this person who's kind of flowing through time but actually, that's a folk level. Then you do find that in Buddhist texts and in Buddhist cultures, a kind of folk level of um, this idea of reincarnation. Mm -hmm. But the more technical level for Buddhists would be that uh, the you know the person like me, John Donne, is not going to be reborn because John Donne is the is a name for you know, consciousness in this particular kind of body, it's not just named for consciousness, it's a name for this embodied being in this time and place. And that's never going to happen again. Sure. So reincarnation isn't that there's a single person kind of flowing through time. One metaphor is if you take a candle and you have another candle, you, you light a candle and you've got another one nearby, and just as you're putting out the one, you let it light the other one. So is that the same flame or a different flame? Right? That's one traditional metaphor. And it's kind of like, well, it's like yes and no, right? There's continuity, but there's not identity. So the basic idea here is that there's a causal flow, and that causal flow continues. Now, at a trivial level, that we all know that that's already the case. We all agree with that because, for example, all of your podcasts are presumably going to be around, you know, after you're gone. Especially if Looking we home. set up an antenna and in, in like, you know, maybe we should transmit them out into the cosmos. And, you know, like those radio waves, they'll, they'll maintain a certain amount of coherence for a while. And, uh, you know, so uh, it's all in the stuff of our bodies. It's not like it's just going to disappear. So... We leave all kinds of traces that continue. We leave traces in each other, uh, memories and thoughts, feelings. We leave, you know, writings and recordings, uh, impacts on our environment. 
uh, on our societies and our families. So all of there's all there's all kinds of continuity already, and that's so part of it is really part of the like more sophisticated way of understanding reincarnation is thinking in terms of that kind of continuity, right? Uh, then on top of it, then no question, Buddhists are also going to assert that there is some kind of continuity of the stuff of consciousness itself. Like in using that energy metaphor that they talk about, that there is some kind of energy that uh, persists uh, and that that energy is going to go on to then um, be manifested in, in, uh, in another life. It's, again, not the same person, uh, but it is a, you know, there is a continuity of that energy. And obviously that part is very hard to establish empirically, pretty clearly. But that would be the the notion that there's some kind of a continuity of the energy. Uh, and again, you know, the idea that there's continuity for us, like genetic continuity, you know, they talk about karma, we talk about genes and culture, you know, all that stuff, in some ways we already accept, but the, that we are the products of a particular kind of genetic heritage and cultural heritage, uh, the products of a certain educational system, uh, of our past experiences, and that, you know, there's a kind of causal flow, which is the expression of our manifestation as beings in the world. Uh, but then the question of what happens after death is, uh, you know, saying that there's some kind of, I don't know, quantum packet of energy that continues, that gets a little harder to just make sense of from an empirical mm. standpoint. Although we are doing research on a very uh, peculiar phenomenon is uh, on a phenomenon called tuktam, which is a uh, when practitioners um, engage in certain kinds of meditation, uh, the goal is to be maintain awareness into the death process. And then what we see is, uh, I mean, this part is the case that there are people who who are clinically dead, but they uh, don't uh, go into rigor mortis. They don't exhibit, you know, a normal rate of decomposition or really even any decomposition for some days. And they sometimes, and they look like, they don't look dead, frankly. And uh, mm. they will remain like that sometimes for, you know, two, three weeks. Often shorter, but, and these cases are documented. Uh, but we've been trying to, you know, we've done some, the only paper we've published so far on this is a negative finding, which is basically given the you know technology we have and the conditions in the field, uh, we have no evidence of any brain function occurring, even at a very subtle level, at least nothing that we can measure. Well, it's good that you're investigating this empirically. That's, uh, um, I think maybe why Buddhism resonates with a lot of um, scientists and, and physicists, especially some I've seen several authors in, in physics papers and books have pointed out parallels between Buddhist thought and our understanding of modern physics. You know the uh, and the things that I was talking to you about Penrose uh, previously and thought that there's also. Um, I've read the, the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness, the idea that nothing has an intrinsic nature aligns well with quantum physics, the idea that basic particles don't have 
physical trajectories. Um, you know, we've experimented on them. If you're not observing them, they don't really exist and they can switch forms seemingly at random between, you know, as long as the energy is conserved, their form is, is uncertain until they're observed. So it's, it's quite interesting that there are some of these parallels. And I think that that's, um, the fact that you don't have to have a belief is probably, um, resonates well with a scientific mindset of, of skepticism. So yeah, I, I think- I'd say that. I mean, one of the great examples of that recently is uh, Carlo Rovelli's book, um, Helgoland. I don't know if you've seen that book, but there he talks a lot about a particular Buddhist philosopher, Nagarjuna. Yeah, I highly recommend that book. Uh, I had We just had a conference actually at Berkeley organized by Bob Scharf, professor at Berkeley of Buddhism. And we just had a sort of, I forget exactly what it was called, but it was sort of quantum physics and Buddhism 2.0. And uh, we had Chris Fuchs there, who is the uh, one of the real, you know, founders of the Cubism interpretation. And then Carlo Rovelli was there, is uh, who has this relative, uh, you know, I forget for some reason, a relational uh, uh, interpretation. I think that's what he calls it. And and that and uh, he's, you know, the way he put it was, um, you know. He developed this interpretation, which I'll describe in a moment. And uh, then, you know, people kept saying to him, "Have you read Nagarjuna? Have you?" And he said, "Who the hell is that?" You know, Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna. And then he finally discovers Nagarjuna is, you know, this Buddhist philosopher. And he finally sits down to read it, and it totally—he couldn't believe it. Actually, how much alignment there was for his philosophy, or how motivated, in a sense, it made him to work out certain issues. And uh, so he talks about this in Helgoland, um, and which is a great book. And the the crux of this interpretation and the place where Nagarjuna, in a sense, makes a contribution is Nagarjuna in his very famous text um, in Sanskrit called the Mulama Jamakakarika, which means the fundamental verses on the middle way. He says, Yaha praticha samutparam shunatam tam prachakshmehe, which means in Sanskrit, which means that which is, we say that, that which is interdependent is empty. So, uh, and in short, there's no such thing as something that is uh, not empty. In other words, to to be real, to to exist, to to be able to say that something is existent, to make sense of that term, to the of that model, right? Say, oh, this exists. The only way we can make sense of that is if that thing is not existing in and of itself, uh, uh, in, in a sense, in isolation. That the only way things that can exist is in relation to each other. The only way they can have identities is in relation to each other. And so Ravelli takes that idea. And so when we say they're empty, what we mean is they're empty of any kind of fixed, uh, absolute, non-relational identity. And it's the only kind of identity have they have is an interdependent identity. And so Carlo took that idea and, uh, you know, in his uh, account, the, as you said, you know, like the, um, uh, it's only when, it, when the quantum effect is observed, when a quantum level of phenomena is observed, that then it has a fixed identity. Otherwise, it's in a, like in a superposition, for example, is Schrodinger's cat 
dead or, or or alive. Or Carlo redefines it. He said, "I don't like killing cats." So he says, "You know, is he is he awake?" It's a sleeping draft instead of a sleeping gas instead of a poison. You know, is the cat awake or asleep? And um, you know, the idea here is that well, we can one solution. I don't know if I fully understand, or and to the extent I understand it, whether I fully accept this solution, but. One solution to this is simply to say that all things are already in relation to each other. Not all things, but things are already in relation to each other. So within those networks of relations, they have identities. But the question is, you know, uh, which relation, which network? So from the standpoint of one network, a thing can have a fixed identity. But because it's not in relation to another network, it seems to lack that kind of a fixed identity. So no thing has a fixed identity outside of a network, but within a network, it has an identity, right? It has a, uh, you know, uh, it's not in a superposition. But it is, uh, but those networks are not necessarily in relation to each other. So even inanimate things, things can be in relation to each other. It, you know, inanimate things, and the, so Carlo's really concerned with, in a sense, a kind of, the threat of idealism, if you like, you know, saying giving too much credence to the role of the observer. And uh, so instead of just like, it's not just about an observer, it's about, you know, just being in relation. And the observer plays a role in the sense that when the observer is part of the network that, uh, uh, that um, you know, it determines or that permits that identity to be manifest. Uh, you know, I think I, it's a very interesting way of, of riffing off of Nagarjuna, and it's certainly an interpretation that many people are finding compelling. I had a little, uh, to the, again, to the extent I understand it, for me, part of it is I think there's too much concern about, you know, the threat of idealism. Because, again, you know, maybe a rock can be in relation to other rocks, and, you know, the quantum level phenomena we're in question are determined in relation to the other things they are uh, related to in a network. But uh, quantum physics is done by humans in human minds. And so the model of quantum physics and you know the collapse of the wave function doesn't really seem to me to make a lot of sense if we are not talking about human minds as part of that network. Yeah, you definitely have to have a model of the observer in your description of an experiment. And that's something that's been pointed out so uh i'm sure i'm mangling uh carla rovelli's uh, position so i just encourage you to have a look at helgoland and make oh, sense of it God. yourself but also chris fuchs's you know p uh, this is what i like about cubism is that it it doesn't just try to sort of eliminate the role of human consciousness uh without turning it into some kind of a magical you know solution uh, to the problems of quantum physics. This has been uh, very interesting. Uh, a lot of, uh, I've learned quite a bit in this discussion. And I think we're getting towards the end of our time slot here. So I'd like to thank you for coming on and, and enlightening us uh, towards the, the, the Buddhist uh, way. Uh, I'm going to send you a, a t-shirt for the rational view for coming on. So uh, oh, thanks. To, uh, express my appreciation of, of your time. Uh, and before I sign off, uh, there's one question I ask a lot of my contributors. Uh, 
what uh, what science fiction are you interested in? Have you, have you are you an, a reader of science oh. fiction? Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm quite a bit of a fan. I uh, uh, let's see. You know, I liked. Uh, well, I just finally finished watching The Expanse. I, I'd read the books. So, and I, my friend, I don't know if you know Adam Frank, the astrophysicist, but no, uh, he's a he's a he really encouraged me to. Uh, he's a very interesting fellow. He's got uh, he does some blogging. He's worked for NPR, the New York Times, and stuff. Very interesting guy. And uh, so he encouraged me in The Expanse, which I really enjoyed. I liked Andy Weir's, you know, The Martian, of course. But then there was this new one that I really enjoyed. And I can't remember the name of it right now uh, about I don't want to I don't want to do a spoiler. So Andy Weir's book about encountering aliens. I'll just say that much. I wish I could remember the title. That was one I just read recently. And I've been working through some of Ted Chang's uh, um, uh, uh, stories, also. So um, yeah, bit of I'm, you know, go Very way cool. back in sci-fi. And that was neat. certainly part of the reason I wanted to be an astronaut, right? I was kind of a tre- trekkie and all that stuff. And uh, so there sure, you go. Sure, sure. All right. Well, thank thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. All right. Take care. I'll see you later. Bye bye now. Bye bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.